Lemonade. Hi everyone, welcome back to part two of this episode of Lemonade. In the first part, we spoke to our friend Ellie about his work in Venezuela, going back home and what that experience was like. In this part, which is part two, we are going to chat with Ellie about what it looks like when we prioritize our mental health and how it supports us as professionals and as people. Remember, this is part two, so listen to part one first. Thanks for listening. And so you've gone through all of this and you're really racking your brain about how to to accurately represent yourself, your work, what's happening in country, what's happening with your family, and then you come back you come back home. And all of a sudden you're ruminating on on everything that you've been involved in, everything that you saw when you went back home. What happens at this point? An overwhelming sense of inability to resolve um, an issue that is infinitely greater in size and complexity than myself. So a situation where um, I see or feel an imminent sense of failure in terms of what was supposed to be my opportunity to give back. Uh, Do you think that was a a reasonable feeling or was that potential sign of burnout or, you know, what do you think that was? It was, there's nothing reasonable about that thinking. I mean, in any logical perception, you'd come back to and very quickly, you know, try to put things into, into score and see how big you are or little you are in this context related to, to the complexity of the situation. And so in terms of defining success, had I done everything I possibly could to try to come up with the best ideas I could to contribute to the complexity of context? I hope so. But, um, was I really going to be able to come to par with something that would move the needle or change? I don't, I don't think so. And I, that those were just kind of facing the systemic failures that were so far beyond myself. But now really coming to kind of a par understanding with how difficult um, it really is to understand the limitations and scope of what we can do as individuals as well-intended as we, we might want to be in the face of these incredibly complex uh, political and economic environments. So, um, yeah, initially it was an overwhelming sense of fa- of failure. That's I think that's what what really hit me at first. And how did that manifest itself in terms of how you were coping? It um, basically threw me into a spin of acute depression and anxiety. Things that I uh, luckily felt quite well equipped to identify and understand and frame so it didn't seem as a surprise I, I, I you know I as I've as an individual I've dealt with chronic anxiety most of my life um, it's something that I've spent a lot of time trying to understand about myself uh, to deal with to frame to equip myself to manage uh, acute depression is a totally different game you know they tend to be associated but depressions are really complex uh, response of the body to almost I mean literally to depress nervous response and so from being a very upbeat lively uh, person I very quickly found myself in a complete lack of energy willingness to move a finger stand up or get out of bed um, find the time to keep a schedule find the time to show up for um, you know the basic responsibilities at work that I had to do or perform at the way I normally do and um, 
again, I, I feel fortunate that I dealt with similar things in the past and understood what I was going through. So it wasn't as scary as it could have been um, if I'd found myself completely unequipped to understand the impacts of depression or of traumatic uh, events. And had you, sorry to interrupt, no, had you linked up what was going on with you at that time with, you know, what you had been doing in Venezuela? Yeah, I knew it was related. I mean, it's difficult to think otherwise. It's not like I took a six-week trip to Venezuela, I came back, and, oh, I'm just randomly depressed. How strange. It wasn't rocket science. You know, I, didn't, I didn't get the Nobel Peace Prize for mental health like that, you know, that year. I was like, yeah, yeah, you just witnessed and lived through some tough things personally yep. uh, that are having a pretty immediate effect. And in that case, I was almost fortunate to that it was so clear and directly linked. Because in other instances where I've had more acute depression or anxiety in the past, it's been harder to identify the source, particularly when you're on long deployments. You know, I did four years in South Sudan, and that's a really difficult. Once you you know you're ex you're exposed to so many almost environmental microaggressions or micro traumas, mm -hmm. it becomes really hard to identify. But you know, there's no pin like, oh, that was the event or that was the moment where it happened. And so were you able to take all of this to, you know, your workplace and be able to work through, discuss kind of all of these feelings and your mental state after everything in Venezuela, or were you kind of by yourself? I was quite lucky um, to be very well supported through that by my wife, um, who I spent a lot of time explaining and trying to verbalize a lot of the complex emotions that come with chronic anxiety or previous experience of depression. Uh, the one thing that was very positive in an upbringing where both of my parents were mental health professionals is that as crazy as we might have all been, mental health and, for example, the options of therapeutic treatment had never been taboo in my family. Whereas in my wife's family, not her, sorry, not her family, but my, my wife's upbringing in, you know, in the UK, tended to be a very taboo topic, and you would know this. <laughs> uh, I have mentioned this before. Yeah. And the complexities of being cult of bringing cultural differences around the understanding of mental health together uh, and bringing... So it, it, we'd, we'd reached the point in my relationship where I think I'd, I'd been able to explain a lot more to my wife about why mental health was such an important topic to me, why I'd invested so much time and energy of my life in my own resilience and ability to deal with mental health issues. And why it was so important to me that I make efforts all the time to try to find space to, to make it less taboo for my colleagues and friends. And so when it came to another instance where it's like, well, well it's, it's not me supporting others around me. It's uh, I'm in the situation again where I need help. Finding myself again in the situation uh, where I was the one who needed help and this time really applying the energy and effort to ask for help because this is one of the key steps. Um, the key issues about some of the complexity of mental health um, and how taboo it can be sometimes is that we try to think that resolving acute mental health episodes or issues or chronic ones, either ones really, uh, require totally different skill sets than it would to deal with other physical health issues. For example, if I've got an overwhelming you know, acute infection, let's say a respiratory infection, I'm not going to yoga my way through it. I'm not going to go out for a run and it's just going to get better. I'm not going to, you know, maybe read a book and or talk to a friend and it's going to get better. There's a difference between a common, you know, maybe sniffles that you get in a day and, and 
which might be relatable to basic anxiety you might feel from day to day work to an acute episode of, of anxiety or depression, which is more equatable to like an overwhelming bodily infection because mm-hmm. it really does take over the entirety of yourself. Yeah. So um, being able to ask for help and understanding was important. So in the tools I guess I developed for myself in my past, I mean, I, I, through my adult life, I've been through two long therapeutic processes, so almost two years each. Um, you know, relationship therapy with my wife as we almost preemptively looked for the tools to equip ourselves to move uh, from Kenya to the U.S. and so on. And so I, I, I felt relatively equipped to be like, okay, I, I, I can, I've identified what I'm experiencing. So I, I'm basically responding to this, you know, temporary exposure to a very difficult situation with what is a normal bodily reaction. I'm retreating into myself. I'm, I'm isolating myself in thought and, and, and physically. I'm, I don't want to leave my room. I don't want to speak. I don't want to interact. But luckily, I've been able to sort of establish the meta understanding of this weirdness I was going through through having done it in the past. And so what I knew I needed to do was to get ahead of it. I needed to spend the energy and the time to to really get ahead of it if I didn't want it to overcome um, you know, my understanding and ability. Some of these things, you can't just wait for them to go away. You need to address it and, and, and get into it. So I did a couple of things. I first considered whether it would be appropriate or necessary for me to go back um, to counseling, so to seek a therapist to deal with this specific situation, whether I would need, you know, temporary support, uh, like therapeutic treatment, like medications to try to pull me out of an acute, uh, you know, depressive episode, whether I, what what kind of time or, or allowances I would need for my work environment in order to invest the energy and so on. So I said, all right, well, let, let me take it one step at a time, because one of the key things that um, I learned from my previous time, you know, in therapy and so on, is that we often go in thinking we're going to fix very specific issues. We often think we're going to, uh, I don't know, I'm going to go in because I saw this or I experienced this. And at the end of the day, you spend two years and they're not talking about that episode. I mean, some people may need to spend a lot of time going over a particularly traumatic event, but what you're really seeking is to identify what are the factors that might be leading you to have what is at the end of the day a very chemical response in your brain. Um, what are the life events that led you there? And so uh, I decided, all right, well, let me take it, you know, one step at a time. The first thing I want to do is I want to see what resources my organization has available. Looked on our sort of internet site to see, you know, I was not newish to this organization, but I hadn't been there for too long. And I hadn't sought these, these resources before with this organization. So I said, all right, let me, let me see what, what's available. Um, so just, <clears throat> just for you, if you're going to be mentioning your organization a bit more, you can just try and generalize that a bit more sure yeah well just that makes sense yeah Yeah, no i wasn't going to go into specifics just like the process of seeking what might be there okay so yeah i thought about looking what was available because it i mean if you know if you step out of an agency vehicle and twist your ankle that's an occupational health issue it should be dealt with within the work environment it's not like i twisted my ankle at work and then i gotta go back and pretend like this is my own fault and there's nothing related to what happened at work so I wanted to try to see how I could deal with this within a work environment. So one of the key things that I saw is, well, do we have staff counselors? Do we have people that are equipped to kind of help us? And we did. So I sought out the help of one of the counselors, scheduled um, you know, a meeting, and, and, and it was relatively quick and easy. I showed up. I explained 
a bit of what had happened, what I'd experienced and what I was feeling at the time. Um, I'd explain, I mean, I was already on antidepressants at the time, so it was you no know, particular change. Not antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications. I've been taking these on and off for a long time. And so I explained my current dosage, you know, how I was feeling under that dosage and work. And in this case, the staff counselor happened to be a psychiatrist. So, you know, they didn't necessarily have the capacity to prescribe a medication as a staff counselor, but they did have the medical training and understanding to be able to see where I was, uh, you know, contextually as well as the kind of course of treatment. And the key thing that it helped to to manage was it you know I wasn't going to go in there two times a week for the next six weeks to have therapy with this counselor it was somebody with a professional background who could validate a little bit what are the steps and plans that I'm making myself to deal with the situation if I twisted my ankle I'm you know I'm going to elevate it I'm going to put an ice pack on and then heat and I'm going to take anti-inflammatories you know and then a doctor would say yeah that seems like a good plan just do that and then give me a shot if it doesn't go well well the same with mental health I was looking for a little bit of professional validation and help to define a course of treatment or correction so I could get back to norm. Did I think this was going to be forever? No, I mean, because I'd experienced it in the past, I knew it was something that could be dealt with. And so that that helped. It helped to set a course and to identify what I wanted to do, Um, you know, how much and how much time I should kind of follow a course of treatment for this acute, you know, depressive episode I was having before it was something out of the normal. Because one of the key things that the staff counselor was able to help me frame is that what you're experiencing is completely normal and it's ex- almost expected. It doesn't make you any lesser. It doesn't make you any stronger. It just means you're experiencing a normal human reaction to what's been a personally traumatic event. You've gone through something difficult that draws energy, that draws, you know, your, your keep gets you out of sort of your, your frame of mind and, and you got to give yourself the time to grieve the event that's occurred and the experience you've had and I know I haven't gone into too much detail about why this was such like a harsh event for me, but it really was. I mean, it really broke at a core a lot of the things for me with my country. It broke. Um, it was a disappointment in my country and my people and my sense of identity because it was a completely self-inflicted event in the case of Venezuela. You know, there was no war there. There wasn't a foreign intervention. There wasn't, you know, all these things. And um, all of those things can really shake you to your core and, you know, personal sense of failure in terms of my intervention as a professional, all of these things. So um, being able to say, well, you know, if, if this continues for more than 30 days or two months and you still aren't able to get up in the morning and then, yeah, we got to look at something different, but start with this. And so I did that. And, uh, you know, I basically all it was was I, I was going to continue to sort of monitor my general sense of, of, of emotional state, if I could write it down or understand it, you know, how do I feel this morning, how do I feel in the evening, how am I sleeping, what are the things that are coming back, or what are the cyclical negative thought patterns that are very common with uh, anxiety or depression, what are those things that are occupying my mind without my control, like what are those thoughts, memories, or events that are taking over my thought processes, can I remember them, can I, can I figure them out, can I give them space without, you know, kind of fear, um, the second was in this case, you know, I was already on an anti-anxiety medication that could support um, to prevent a little bit of the excess depression. So I continued on that medication based on, you know, what a medical professional had advised me to do. Um, and the third one was, well, you know, I consider myself a high performing individual and I like to continue to perform at scale. And it was very tough for me to think that this specific event was going to was going to put a damper on it. And the majority of our organizations or our staff or our colleagues, yeah, um, aren't 
going to be as open to having a conversation about you having a cold as they're going to be about you having a temporary depressive episode. Yeah, I mean, you've obviously, it's it's been good for you to have been able to approach your workplace and be able to, to have those services. But what we hear in general is across the aid sector, you know, these services in general are not available to people. Absolutely. And so your ability to be resilient and your information on resilience and your awareness of mental health is really based on a lot of the time what you can access outside of your workplace and outside of your kind of professional environment. And so was that was that the same for you? You know, you obviously are very self-aware in terms of what's happening with you and how to how to deal with it. Is that something that came from where you worked previously or your kind of family background? A mix of both. And I'll take a step back here to say something that I think is quite important when it comes to mental health. At the end of the day, um, we can either critique or worry or contribute as much as we want to organizational resources when it comes to mental health. But like physical health, uh, physical security or safety, ultimate responsibility is personal. Um, there's really nobody that can better equip or prepare for the needs that you might have as an individual or the support or resilience elements that you might um, have in complex environments other than yourself. You know, when we do basic security training uh, and, you know, they kind of really drill this into you, like who's ultimately responsible? Is it your agency or is it you? And in all cases, it's you. Why should it be any different for our mental health? And so I, am I an advocate for ensuring that these resources are available? Absolutely. But when we were first going on these deployments, what were the things that we looked at? Did any of us as individuals first try to understand what resources our organization had available? Did we even have the foresight to think if, you know, we, we uh, you know, when we first landed, oh, I see a trauma kit. I see a medical kit. Those are basics for treating a physical injury. But most of us didn't think to look, oh, is there, is there a staff counselor? Is there a peer support volunteer? Is there a training I can take? What's my organization stand on mental health like support? What is the insurance capacity to cover things like therapeutic treatment and so on before I decide to take this job or not? Do you think most people don't ask these questions because they just assume that it won't be necessary? Or do you think that there is a prevailing opinion thought or opinion that within the aid sector these things will not be considered and so many people just don't look into it it's a combination of of things i mean these organizations are nothing more than a sum of individuals like when we it's 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 very easy to provide identity to an organization but it's no more than a bunch of us coming together to provide different services when we're hired as individuals and sometimes our, our contract status or so on makes us feel more or less or a part of that organizational structure but um, one of the key things I've always tried to do is when I land in a space is my personal background and, and understanding and training and individual, you know, emotional first aid or, or psychosocial support, things like this to really put it back to that environment to be able to, you know, talk about it openly. One of the key things I, I try to do as much as possible is to speak to friends. I find myself very often having to do it more with male uh, colleagues and with female colleagues. And talking openly about my experience with mental health, talking openly about my experience with, uh, with, with you know, mental health and therapeutic treatment in the past. Why did I go? What was it like? What was it like to speak to a therapist? How did I find one? What are the basic mechanics of it? How did it help? How did I prepare myself mentally to go into a therapeutic process? Did I have objectives? Did I not? Was I just there to get some basic time and, and empathy? 
Um, I talking a lot about my personal relationship with, with therapeutic treatments in terms of medications. What was it like to take anti-anxiety medications? Is it for everybody? Should we, you know, when most of these places that we deployed to, you're not going to have the availability of a psychiatrist readily available to diagnose you and, and, you know, and say, okay, this is what you should be prescribed. And that leaves us really exposed because the same way, you know, we might go to the pharmacy and buy ourselves a course of malaria treatment or some antibiotics that nobody else has told us we should be taking. It's quite prevalent in the humanitarian sector for people to buy, whether sleeping medications, whether it's, you know, anxiety medications or so on, that can be found quite easily over the counter. And some of them with addictive capacities um, and, and, and side effects that nobody really likes to think about. So you see tons of people saying, oh, well, I've taken this pill here or there, or I took that pill, or it helped me sleep, or it helped me get over this point when I was really anxious. Do you think it's easier for people to recommend self, self-medication self or, or self-prescribing than it is to actually communicate in, in depth and in detail about your mental health issues? I mean, you said earlier that you you know, speak to more of your male colleagues about your personal circumstances than female. Why, why is that? I might be an issue related to our willingness to explore like personal emotional processes but um, it's very rare that a mental health event will occur without incomplete isolation of emotional processes for the individual so it's how to explain this it's not the event it's not the traumatic event itself that's going to lead you down a potentially negative path of mental health issues it's your emotional reaction to that event it's how you are prepared or how you will respond to that event that could really take you to a difficult place. Whether it's something as acute and traumatic as you know death, as personal injury, as very gruesome events that we might be exposed to, to something as difficult to identify as chronic exposure, high levels of intense stress. Um, that's very common in our work environment. Yeah. All of us, those things are going to drive very different emotional responses in different individuals. One of the things, for example, and, and I, don't, I don't mean for this to come across as gender normative, but there are certain differences in the way the genders can process or are more accustomed to deal with emotion. So my wife loves to speak every minute of everything that happened in her day. She loves to verbalize every emotion she's having about every single thing she saw. And she loves to tell me every of it almost to a painstaking level of detail. And I try to be a good husband and listen and, you know, be patient and be an active <laughs> listener. But on the counter, I completely internalize the majority of my emotional thought processes. Um, I think about things for almost as long as she does. I mean, we might go on for two weeks thinking about the same thing, except I've heard every single step of her thought process. She's heard none. And then two weeks later, I come out and I'm like, this is what I've decided on this issue. And she's like, what? She's like, what do you mean? And I was like, I've been thinking about this for two weeks. She's like, well, you didn't say anything. And I was like, well, I, it was my personal thought process. So even that ability to externalize thought and feelings, I find it often less common in male colleagues. And I think it is, I mean, it's not gender normative to say males, uh, other way around. It would be gender normative to generalize that all males are programmed this way, but it is clear to understand in our societal structures how males may be conditioned based on expectations of society for certain behaviors to be, you know, much more closed up about uh, emotions and what we're experiencing. But yeah, at the core of all of these mental health issues is how we respond to our environment. And so, you know, two uh, people in very similar circumstances might have completely opposing responses to the same traumatic event. Mm -hmm. 
And it doesn't make one or the other any better or any worse. It depends on our mental state during that time. It depends on so many things that, 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 you know, that are happening. And so being able to build up resilience and space is, is really important, but also the individual capacity. You know, we really worry about, oh, our organizations aren't well-equipped to deal with this or to give us this or this infrastructure is not there or this service isn't there. But how many of us have thought or taken the time, for example, to look for free online trainings for improved mental health or resilience? There may not be that many that are specifically applicable to humanitarian deployment, but they are out there. How do we, how many of us have spent time to look at tools and how to build that resilience and that capacity before our deployments? How many of us have really thought about um, being honest with ourselves when our environment or our, our exposure is overwhelming, giving ourselves a space, being able to communicate that effectively to people around us, both our professional peers and, and, and our friends and our family. A lot of us prefer, and we are in part conditioned to this, to just put our heads down and pretend like or think that, you know, we're tougher than this. You know, we can work our way through this, you know. Um, we can tough our way through the difficulties of mental health issues, but it's like an infection. I mean, you can't walk your way out of an infection. You can't tough your way through an infection. You got to treat it. It's the right thing to do. And so do you think, I mean, you previously worked as a firefighter. Mm. And, you know, at one point you've said previously that you were better equipped and better prepared to deal with really challenging contexts through your training as a firefighter than as a humanitarian. Yeah, absolutely. Um I think one of the big, big, big failures, systemic failures in terms of, of the humanitarian sector is how long it's taken to professionalize the trade. Um, you know, we have massive amounts of technicians with a lot of in specific abilities, but managerial capacity specific to the humanitarian sector often tends to be lacking. Uh, emergency management as an entire professional track tends to be quite lacking. And what's really interested, having been a firefighter and EMT for almost eight years of my life, is that uh, these organizational structures had to make part of their basic, you know, and I'm talking about fire departments and emergency medical services. The managerial structures of these organizations had to evolve to understand the complexities of a response environment that's chronically likely to expose individuals to traumatic events and potential negative outcomes that occur. So fire and police, for example, tend to be um, two of the professions with the highest rates of uh, depression, anxiety, mental health, as well as suicide and divorce. Well, who else is right up there with them? Humanitarian aid workers. And we talk about it and we joke about how unlikely and, you know, the success of our personal or, you know, love relationships will be. But the difference is the majority of these emergency services, and I'm... Uh, that, that was an overstatement. A lot of these emergency services, at least in, 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 in the U.S., whereas where I experienced most of it, have had to evolve to address these issues over time because so many of their, uh, of their staff have, have, have had to deal with this. And so the difference being the acuteness of some of the traumatic events that fire and EMS might see versus um, the broader time span that humanitarian aid workers may be exposed to some of these traumatic events. Um, in the humanitarian world, because you know we we tend to think unless we've been exposed to like a very traumatic specific event, then no, there's no possibility we could have post traumatic stress disorder or post traumatic stress, and that's simply not true. A chronic exposure to micro traumatic events, you know, it's like the everyday smallness, the things you hear, the things your peers experience, the things that in your environment you feel like you have to deal, can all lead to really negative emotional responses, and we're basically 
pushed to think, oh, you know, it, it's normal. It's part of the job. We just got to push through it. But it's not. Um, one of the key things, you know, in, in the fire and, 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 and EMS services, we're physically trained to not become part of the problem. So we're physically trained to never expose ourselves to become a potential victim of the event by being safe, by prioritizing our personal safety. Um, and that applies just as much to mental health. If we're not in our best state to be able to manage and respond in a situation of high stress or acute complexity, we become part of the problem. We can contribute to the anxiety of our peers. We can contribute to the decline in the general demeanor and morale that our teams might feel. We can contribute to making less effective decisions because we're burnt out, because our capacity to see the complexity of issues is lower, because we can't empathize as well with the event and the situations around us. So by not dealing with our mental health effectively, we're actually increasing the complexity of the response environment. We're making it more difficult for ourselves and for our peers. And so seeking to build the resilience, to build the capacity to identify acute events or temporary events of mental health uh, problems in ourselves and in our peers is a, it's, it's not just, a, we could say it's a systemic failure, but it's really a failure in the formation of the humanitarian sector as a professional group of individuals. And so based on your experience with emergency services previously, what sorts of things can the humanitarian sector do to kind of better support their staff? Well, one is, is, is an acceptance and an understanding that mental health is going to be one of the key occupational threats, occupational health threats that we will face as, mental, as humanitarian staff deploy into complex environments. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a, it could happen, it's an, it will happen, and it will happen to a majority of our staff. Understanding that and designing our, our organizational care systems, both for self-care, for peer support, as well as for formal support, is crucial. We need to have better equipped mental health professionals that understand the complexities of our response environments. You can't pick up a, you know, a, 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 an urban uh, trained mental health professional who's never worked in a conflict environment and expect that they'll be equally as equipped to deal with, I don't know, uh, basic things like, I don't know, divorce in, in, in the Americas as they would as exposure to traumatic events in a conflict environment. Second is, is basic training um, that isn't just seen as one more of those mandatory courses that we have to do before we get on. It's got to be a really true organizational investment in opening up the world uh, of threats, I mean, of, of, of risk to the staff in terms of understanding the potential exposure. Uh, a lot of us make a lot, you know, very risk-calculated decisions where we choose to take employment or deploy to certain contexts. But very few of us take into that calculated thought process, well, how risky will it be for my personal mental health? How risky will it be to the joint health of my relationship with my peer, I mean, with my wife or my partner? How will this environment or this job potentially affect how I am able to respond or how much of me really will be left when I come back? Uh, and in that calculated decision, if you had the true facts and the information and you had an organizational onboarding process, I can tell you, hey, these are the things that you can expect to experience, and there's a high likelihood in, in, in these types of duty stations for extreme fatigue, for traumatic experiences, for chronic exposure to stress, to high levels of stress, 
um, within our staff's understanding, you know, through staff surveys, how many of our staff and giving adequate statistics, 60% of our staff, you know, experience mental health issues during average deployments. This many, you know, seek help. These many that are, if you, that was put up front with you on a pamphlet that came with your onboarding package before you signed that contract, don't you think we would all be a bit more mindful about how we're going into it? And, you know, the yeah, same way we, sure. we would pack, for example, you know, we see uh, the state of, uh, what's the, what's the, report that tells us about the the humanitarian uh, the threat to humanitarian staff like how many staff are killed in each context you know we read that we look at that every year and we we consider that in part of our calculated response to whether we're going to go to a context or not um, we look at you know the availability of of, of healthcare systems in in our country settings to see well what should I take with me? Yep. Is there a level one hospital? Level two? Is there a clinic? Is there anything around that's going to be provided? Do I need to take my own medications? Do I need to take my own syringes? Do I need to take a trauma pack? What do I need to take? Well, so few of us are thinking the same about how we're going to deal with mental health issues. Is there a capacity in country? Is there a peer support network? Is there a staff counselor deployed? that are going to be able to, you know, to help me in the case of an acute event. What should I carry? Should I, is it a book? Is it medication? Should I speak to a mental health professional before I deploy to think about this? Um, so in terms of what organizations can do, I think it's number one, that better equip um, and provide information about the potential risk and exposure to acute traumatic events or just the general chronic exposure to high levels of stress. It's very implied. It's, you know, part of the problem with our humanitarian world now is that we're all expected to be, uh, you know, gung-ho cowboy humanitarians. You should be able to deal with this in order to be here. And if you can't, then don't come. Like, well, good luck. That seems like a really great staff retention strategy. Just <laughs> bring them out here until they burn out and then bring in the next yeah. batch. And so related to that, just, just a quick question. You know, what is the single most important thing for you when it comes to your own mental health, particularly working in these contexts? Self-awareness. So I think self-awareness for me is the most important. What are the things that really affect me the most? Is it the things that I see? Is it individual events? Is it my relationship to my day-to-day work? Is it my relationship to my peers? Uh, How am I dealing with particularly complex things happening around me? Am I responding well to them? Am I closing myself up and putting my head in the ground? Am I really taking charge of my emotional well-being? Am I doing things that are going to be positive for me? Uh, you know, am I taking the time to meditate, to work out? These, these are the simple, you know, these are the cold remedies, the basics. This is how, you know, tea with lemon and, and some honey. That's the equivalent of going out for a nice walk or giving yourself the, you know, the time of day versus, you know, am I more equipped for something much more complex? You know, you're not, you're not going to treat pneumonia with, a, you know, with tea and honey. So what, what does that take and how am I going to be prepared? But it's self-awareness and it's understanding what your choices will be if you face it and be prepared to understand a lot of what comes. I think one of the scariest things about mental health is, uh, particularly with more acute episodes of anxiety or depression, is the feeling of loss of control. And for a lot of individuals, that loss of control can feel incredibly overwhelming. It can feel like I'm, I've gone crazy. Uh, you know, something as simple as a panic attack, and I say simple because it's incredibly common. It's very common in our sector. A panic attack literally feels like you've gone insane. You might think, this is it. This is where I get put in the loony bin. And it may only last a couple of seconds, but the feeling of total loss of awareness of your surroundings, the tingling on the tip of your fingers, the inability to breathe, repetitive, uncontrolled, you know, cyclical thoughts, that feels like you're going crazy. Mm-hmm. So what I often talk to people about when I you know, try to explain what a panic attack is like and how common they are, 
is that from the inside, it feels like you're about to fall off an abyss. Mm -hmm. From the outside, you can only fall as from shoulder height to the floor. Mm -hmm. So if you prepare yourself, if you equip yourself to understand the real risk related to mental health, can a traumatic episode or, you know, a, a, a something like a panic attack lead to more complex issues? Uh, of course. But on average, all you need is a little bit of care, a little bit of help. You need people around you. You need a safety net. And we often lose those safety nets when we deploy. It can be a group of friends. It could be family. It could be a partner. When we're deployed in the middle of who knows where and, you know, we don't, we haven't had a break in who knows how long and we start to use negative coping techniques like drinking, uh, you know, taking medications or other worse things, it can be pretty damn lonely. And something as, you know, as simple as a panic attack can drive you into a really complex space. Ali, thank you so much. That was really, um, that was really amazing. That was really informative. Um, thank you for sharing your experience and some of your suggestions for how we can improve the way that we that we look at and deal with with mental health and psychosocial support thanks for having me it was a pleasure thanks for listening everyone if you have any comments reach out to lemonadepod at gmail.com or instagram lemonade underscore pod remember to go and listen to part one and then part two Bye. Lemonade.